I think right now we we in like a, like a revolution or revival or whatever. I think God's moving across all the churches, every denomination across Australia right now, and saying it's time we mend this, we break bread, and we figure a way how to heal and get back to what the church was always meant to do: protect the the ones who can't protect themselves, feed the ones who can't feed themselves. Share the unconditional love of Jesus. Stand when injustice has is, is happening. When they, when the people are oppressed, the church stands there with them. This is the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. This is episode number 48 of Sparrows and Wildflowers, and I am really excited to bring you this episode as I had the opportunity to speak with Benny Egmelis. Benny is an incredibly funny and equally wise person. He's an Aboriginal business owner, entrepreneur, and comedian. In this conversation, we had some really real chats around his life growing up, his schooling and career, the role of comedy in society and how political correctness and sensitivities are interacting with that. Benny shares some really real and profound insights around working through really tough stuff with God and through trauma. We speak about the role of the church in reconciliation, about the debate around the 26th of January, and much more. I really loved and appreciated this conversation. Just a quick word of warning for those with sensitive ears, this episode does contain a couple of swear words, so if that offends you, you have been warned. And so I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I have, and I hope that you get a lot out of the wisdom and perspective that Benny had to share. I remember growing up in two worlds, you know, like one world where my mum and dad weren't like going to church and life was hectic like the family were were into crime and it was a lot of violence and a lot of drug use a lot of lot of a lot of things you know and then I remember going to church and it was just like weird for me you know like going to church and seeing this and plus my dad was still working out his demons you know what I mean so he was sort of like he was a heavy-handed man you know like he would come home and he was heavy-handed with mum and the kids and, and and so my idea of church was that it's fake like it didn't work and that Christians were were just uh, two different people one uh, when they're at church and another when they're at home and so that was ultimately my experience growing up, you know, and then growing up around my cousins and all of my family, they were all in some kind of mischief and a lot into the into kind of you know le- you know legal activity and and this was sort of the entirety of my upbringing. Like, you know, people always ask me about why you know where did you learn business because i didn't go to school or anything i was like yo my f- my family drug dealers yo <laughs> <laughs> i was like, learned from them you know <laughs> yeah wow you know so um you know for me um yeah it was different growing up then i saw my dad have an experience with god and that was when i became uh, i guess a believer how old were you then i was 16 i was 16 and my dad He's, you know, and I'll just talk about it respectfully because I know for my dad, he's a very changed man. But I remember him, you know, beating like my my younger sister, like getting into my sister. And I I jumped in and mum jumped in to protect her. And I remember dad standing there seeing us as a family. And he was just angry, like just like this beast mode. And then he, um, he kind of like, left the house and something about my dad like he grew up you know in that kind of world and he used to collect money and and do a lot of things for a lot of a lot of different family groups and so he was just a really angry dude you know mm. and um i remember um i remember him leaving i, I stood in front of him and i said no nah, dad no more you can't do this anymore and then he saw us all come together as a family and then he just walked out 
and he went. He, we didn't see him for like three days. Wow. I didn't see him for three days, and he came back, and whatever that thing was in his eyes, like that that demon or that anger or that whatever that was, was gone. And he said he he sat us all down, and he was crying. He apologized for the life he'd lived and the way he treated us, and and um. He said, you know, he went away with a pastor and they f- he found Jesus properly, you know, and God did something in his heart. And from that day forward, he, he never raised a hand again to any of us, never spoke a word. And it is the only evidence that I found, like, in my life growing up, I, I always revert back to that, that when I doubt if there's a God or not, I said, you haven't met my father before he was like that, you know, like, wow. if you knew him beforehand... That was that's deep darkness in a man, and so after, you know, he met Jesus and all that, I couldn't deny like whether this church stuff was real or not. I had to kind of like, kind of like say, yeah, there is a God. You know what I mean? Like real miraculous stuff. I'm interested, like you said about your you stood up and your mom stood up. What changed in you? Like, was that something that had happened before? No, I just think I, I remember um, we'd started fighting, boxing a lot, going away fighting, and I grew up boxing and started uh, having bouts and that, and feeling like I'm ready to I'm ready to take on my dad, you know. Mm. And it's funny, like when you're a young man, you you you, you don't realise like these old tigers, man. They they got. <laughs> They are strong, and um, and I got checked, but I, th- I th- it wasn't nothing like uh, you know this sense of injustice or anything. It was just simply like, no, nah, I reckon I'm ready to take on my dad. Mm. I think um, whenever you if you grow up in that lifestyle, you always measure yourself by, actually with your father. If your father's like a hectic dude, uh, and and has a reputation for being a, a certain man in in the community. I always feel like as a as your children as young as a young man as your children, you measure yourself uh, at your father's reputation. Mm. And so for me, I thought I was there, but that was light years away. And what kind of kid were you? I was I don't know. I'll tell you, I was I was just a normal um, boy, but I reckon I, I'll, if I'm honest, I was a rat bag. You know, just a cheeky shit stirrer. Just a, a real, uh, you know, always looking for, like, ways to stir up stuff, you know. So, yeah, but also it was very interesting. I was talking to one of my nieces quite a few months back, and she said, you know, uh, when mum talks about you, Benny, she said um, she talks about you like you was their protector, Aww. you know, from all of this kind of harshness that we had growing up in and and I never saw like I always saw myself as like a just a brat a turd you know <laughs> but it was nice to actually hear a, a perspective of someone else that kind of give you a nice point of view so it was good that's cool yeah so at this point everything the tone changed in your home did you kind of seek God out for yourself then I reckon um I sort of went a bit, bit a bit worse, you know, before I before I slung back around. And it's crazy how often people say that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew God was real. Yeah. But it didn't take away the years of abuse you experienced, the challenges you faced, the the, the memories you had to live through. You you still had the still had to grind that shit out, you know what I mean? Like you had to grind that that brokenness out yeah. with someone. Yeah. And with God. Like you 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 got to stand there and work that out with him. Like you can't just be like God was with me, you know, and all that sort of like you stand there and why God and um try to make sense of it and if you can't make sense of it then you got to find peace with it all. You know what I mean? Like real peace. And um, some things you just can't move forward with until you've had that resolve. So that took me years 
to grind that stuff out years and years and years, even until my 30s, I'd say, you know, mid, late 30s. Took forever. So it was a process. Oh, yeah. Tell you now, it's a process. It's a big process. I mean, um, people want to heal. There's some hurt, you know, that they felt at a, at a real deep level because of what you went through, the things you experienced, the things you endured as a child. You, um, your healing takes a long time. And that was something I had to get comfortable with. Your healing came with a, a lot of mistakes, a lot of challenges. There were times I couldn't even sit in church and listen to preaching because I felt like what was being preached and my lived experience were two different things. Mm. And even though people say, listen, Benny, um, that's what faith is, you know, and all this. And I was like, yeah, but... But my lived experience is the opposite. I remember one day I heard a pastor say, you know, he loves the little children and, and he'll never let anything happen to the little children. And God is a, and I, and I just got up and walked out because I said, well, that's, that's bullshit. You know, like, I believe God is a good God. But, um, but these, like, I, my experiences has, has been totally different to what I, I read and hear and see. And that's where I felt... As a, as, a, as a person who is healing, there are some things only you and God can nut out. You can't get that from a preacher. You can't get that from listening to a sermon. You, you, you and him have to get in a room and hash that shit out and talk it out. And a lot of it, a lot of it is looking in a mirror. It's like that's the hardest thing. So, and I found that that, that that's where healing like for me that's when healing started to take place how did you start that process as a young man or did you kind of put it off do you know what like i i started moving up in leadership mm. and in church yeah in church and and i was coming up in leadership in and I just knew that there were, there was, you know, there was a lot of brokenness in me that wasn't ready. You know, you, you know, is Jason strong actually? I'd, I'd, sort of um, relapsed and and I had a lot of issues with my with with drug abuse and I'd relapsed and gotten clean and I remember pulling into this survey and there was Jason strong. And he he said, "Oh man, come around home and have a drink and get like not like not alcohol, but just come around and have a cup of tea or something and talk." Mm. I said, "All right, man." We come around and he's talking. He said to me, "I remember him saying to me, Benny." Um, he says, "Everybody I've met in my life who is extremely gifted and talented, he says their gift and talent has has brought them down, or and it can pick them up." Yeah, and he says, and you, you, you got to figure that out. You're very gifted, you're talented, but it it can be a stumbling block for you. It can bring you down, basically, or you can figure that stuff out and and learn how it can elevate you. You know, and so, you know, for me, I I, I felt like I was going to a place where I didn't have the character to sustain it, and 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 I didn't accept that until I fell. You know, it was until I fell, and then when I fell, I was able to then realize. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for anything like that, and in fact, I probably went too far. I guess that's where I started getting into stand-up comedy. When I walked away from church, I was like, I walked, I come off stage, and I thought to myself, Nah, I'm not, not doing this anymore. And then I said. Like, um, I remember saying, God, I'll never get back on your stage ever again. And wow. I'll never do this ever again. And I walked out of church and then onto a stand-up comedy stage and picked up a mic. And that, was, and that was the first time. That was the start of my comedy career. Oh, wow. Were you saying to God that you didn't want to do that because you knew you had these two lives or because you were mad at God? or? I, I think it really it was for me like I wasn't, that I would never be, um, 
honourable enough to be in this position uh-huh. that I'm not fit enough. You know, it was more of a, a, a put down on me, like not not of God, but like mm. it was more like I don't feel that I belong here. Right. And um, and I, and I, and over time, I believe you know when you get on platform. It's it's you have a responsibility to, to to the people that look at you, and I was just too too broken, you know, to to, to hash that. Like I know I see all these people, man, they get hungry, they want to be on stage. I want to be on, I want to do this. I want to, I want to tour. I want to sing. I want to do all that. I was like, my man, you don't want that, you know, <laughs> you don't want because if you if you want that, like, then you're gonna have to face some real hardcore stuff in you. Mm. to make you fit for that you know like and and when I see like these people like JD and all the jazz and all that Matty Crocker man like these dudes are real real you know they're real real and I think if if you if you want that that lifestyle man there's so much sacrifice involved yeah. and so for me personally I felt I couldn't do that, you know. Mm. And I even today, I would not man, I don't want to tour and <laughs> with church. Yeah, you yeah. know, like you look at the how many men look mm-hmm. away from their families a lot, mm-hmm. and how much they give, man. Like yeah. far out, these dudes are amazing, you know. I love them, but for me, it just felt like I was wrong thinking. At mm-hmm. the end of the day, I felt I was never good enough for God. Whereas he just showed me um, that I'm just where I need to be. Wow. You know. But so you had a little journey before you got there. How old were you at this time? Jeez, man, I reckon I would have been like late 20s, somewhere around there. Okay. Yeah, late 20s. And that was the start of your comedy career. When did you realise that you were funny, that you could make people laugh? Everybody just thought I was funny man and, and always yeah just always thought I was funny laughing carrying on and um I don't know like I grew up around stand-up comedy I mean I watched all the greats Richard Priety Murphy um Whoopi Goldberg you know Cat Williams um Robin Williams man he was a funny cat yeah in the day man Rob Williams was funny I had a lot of, of my comedy rooted in like British humor Forty Towers, um, Mighty Bush, yeah, Red Dwarf, mm-hmm. uh, Thin Blue Line, Little Britain, Catherine Tate Show, Mrs. Bouquet, Keeping Up Appearances, Mrs. <laughs> it's Mrs. Bouquet, it's Bucket. You I know? grew up on that one too. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Onslow, you know, I, I just loved it, and I I went into a school talent show in year ten, uh-huh. and it was me and this um. This white dude, Andy, Andy, um, is a funny cat, and we did the Forty Towers one, the dead parrot, mm-hmm. the scene, and we did that anyway. We got second. Talia Hart took it out because she sung Celine Dion. My heart will go on. Boo, boo, <laughs> Talia. So, but like, yeah, she cleaned up that year, whatever. But we come second, so well done. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> People say actually, Benny, your comedy career started uh, when you went. And campaign for school captain. Mm-hmm. So it's the weird thing. I was um, not the nicest person in high school. I was a bit of a trout. And anyway, I um, did something towards a school faculty, like like one of those school senior leader um, representatives, you know, like with the head of the social committee band. <laughs> and um, excuse me, can you pick up that paper, please? And I was like, what? Pick what up? I got my nose out of joint about it, and and when I got in trouble for whatever I did, I don't want to get into it. But the teacher said, "Ben, um, so why would you care like that?" And I said, "Listen, all your school leaders, like go and buy drugs off all of my fam- cousins, you know, like right. on the weekend. Like this whole thing is like a joke to me. Mm-hmm. When I see them come here and and pretend to be a role model, but they're the complete opposite, mm-hmm. you know, on the weekend, I can't deal." Mm-hmm. And she said, well, if you think you can do a better job, then you should run for school captain next year. And I said, well, I'm going to do it just to show you how big of a joke this all is, Yeah, right. this whole thing. Anyway, I did it, and my school captain speech 
was a, it started off like this, my name is Ben, everyone calls me Bumbles, Afro Eggy, um, Eggy, you know, but uh, the, the women, the women call me Sexual Chocolate, <laughs> and the entire stage erupted, teachers looked at me like, what is he doing? Like in the first time <laughs> in history, uh, uh, Benny Eggmelis ruined the whole kind of school captain speech and the, the kind of aura that sits around it, the, the prestige around it. I just trashied it up and brought this whole thing down. <laughs> and um, that was just the start. And then I just just murdered Martin Luther King's speech by just do it, <laughs> taking it and changing it up and making it my own. And That's very bold. It was terrible anyway. <laughs> it was. I look at it now. Anyway, um, I remember meeting a school captain a couple of years later and we were talking about, he was like, oh, I just got school captain. I was like, cool, cool. And he's like, yeah, they make us do this, like a preschool captain speech course thing before we go, <laughs> before we run. And he's like, and they did this example of like um, a school captain speech of what not to do. And he goes, and it kind of this dude just said, oh, these things and these things and these things. And they were like, don't do it that way. You need to do it this way. I said, that's my speech, man. He goes, no way. He goes, that's my speech. They're quoting you. Yeah, it was like for four <laughs> years in a row, four or five years in a row, my school captain's speech was the example of what not to say at a school captain's speech. So, so but I got school captaincy. Well done. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and then Miss um, Kostowski made me, you know, she said, now that you got the responsibility, let's see what you can do with it. And she was one teacher who believed in me. There was probably two in wow. high school. And Did I'm that here. make a difference for a you? A massive difference. I'm here today, I think, because of those two teachers. Wow. Where I am, they believed. You know, they really did. And they didn't need to. Mm. Yeah. Did you find that kind of belief and encouragement in the church space as well? Yeah, I think it's different. Mm. It's different because I find in church, if we don't do church the way we're supposed to do church, you're supposed to walk with your brothers and sisters, you know what I mean, like when they're broken, mm. you know, be there. Like If you do not show people your humanity, they can get a false impression of what, Christians are like, like for me, when I came into church, I saw all these people, man, smiling, looking fabulous, you know. First girl that come up to me, man, I know, Siobhan Berry. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to church. And I was like, what does this white girl want from me? Because <laughs> I was like the only black dude. I felt like I was the only black dude in the church. I worked out there were other black people in church. But I walk in there, I was like, what does this person want from me, man? I've never had a white girl come up and be so nice to me in my life as an Aboriginal. You know, mm. in a country town. Oh. And so I was kind of like, I was taken back. And so, but over time, when I got to meet people and I got to see their humanity, and that helps, that helps you a lot. You mm. know, so when you see that, like, you understand, like, you know, you believe in each other, you love each other, but you also understand they're just as broken as you too. And it helps, man, it helps. The transparency. Yeah, it helps. It helps a lot. Yeah. A lot for us, you know. Did you miss church when you decided to leave it? I reckon I missed um I missed the routine of catching up with people. Mm. I think I think all religion aside, all theology aside, when your entire week's constructed around meeting a group of wholesome people. You you do like you can't go wrong. You know what I mean. Like I tell people, like take the religion out of it, man. Like go and meet some new people that are just kind of really healthy, and just be regular. And mm. you don't have to believe in the Bible or listen or whatever. That's like a little trick thing I do, man. Because like we all know, if you start going to church, you start listening. You know, something's gonna happen. But for me, it's like you meet good wholesome people, man. Because there's a lot of there's so a lot of effed up people out there. There's a lot of effed up situations you can get yourself into, man, when you ain't you ain't fo following true north. Mm. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff you can get yourself into. That it's, it's hard to get out, or it just pours on top of that. You know, 
mm-hmm. more hurt and pain and stuff. So continue to just, even if you disagree with the the, the idea of religion and church or that, just keep going to meet the people, mm-hmm. catch up with the, the, the folks and keep talking to friends at church and, and, and just hanging out like that. That's healthy human interaction, you know. When you walked away from church to do comedy, were you walking away from church or were you walking away from God? I felt like it was uh, church, but it wasn't church. It was ultimately God mm. because I've, I, I was always a firm believer that God is the one who just determines the footsteps of a man, you know, like, if you're meant to do that, you're meant to do that. If you're not meant to do that, you're not meant to do that. And I didn't have the maturity enough to see that it had nothing to do with people or church. It had everything to do with my brokenness that he just wanted me to grind out and fix. And what I didn't know that he knew is that it was going to take years, years and years, you know. And best you work in that stuff like that then get to a point and fall and and it's a public spectacle you know so for me um i i knew in my heart i was walking away from god and i thought that oh i don't need god i'll take control of my own life and we all know that that's just a fool's errand but for, for me um it just started this journey. Like, that's where my journey started on on working out what the heck was going on inside this brokenness and trauma and um, just everything, working it out. So what did happen from there? You, you started the comedy. Did it, Did that part of it go well? Yeah, look, it, we started – I started getting a fair bit of traction. Uh, I was on TV a couple of times with the, the Deadly Funnies and then – toured with the Aboriginal Comedy Club with like Sean Chilbrough and and Kev Crepinia and Andy Saunders. These are like really big Aboriginal comedian names, like they're the best comedians in Australia. And got getting a lot of a lot of traction, a lot of um, opportunity and started, you know, doing shows and, and filling out, packing out. And um, I guess for me you know, when you when you go into something like that and you're not healed, right? You start looking for devices to to you know scratch that itch. And for me, it was drugs. You know, like it. The first time I I, I was I did a comedy stand-up comedy set, dude stood up and goes, "Yo, is everybody?" You know, he pulls out a sheet of ecstasy and he's like, "Is everybody cool? Is everyone cool?" And everyone's like, "No, no, it's cool, man. I got my own." You know, like <laughs> it was like everyone was cool because they had their own their own you know sort of uh, flavor yeah and i was like damn this is entertainment you know and um and it was easy for me to to just fall into habits and and take partake of this kind of world and be completely sold out for that instead of the house you know and i guess what one thing i learned growing up was like this thing called cognitive dissonance it's like people and Christians feel it the most when what you believe in your head when it's different to what you're actually doing that creates this like pain in you like a, a they call it cognitive dissonance and you can only live like that for so long conflicted and in turmoil so you're going to do one or two things you're either going to change your actions and realign it to what you believe or you you change your belief to make what your actions are okay, and 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 I did a lot of that. I changed my belief to realign with my action. Well, God ain't real. Well, this ain't real. Well, this is all BS. And I'm the master. I'm the captain of my soul. I even took, you know, like what's his name, Nelson Mandela's old saying, "I am the captain of my soul." I was like, "If it's good enough for Nelson, it's good enough for me." You know what I mean? If <laughs> you start mixing and matching up religions and beliefs and philosophies and all this sort of stuff start using words like energy and aura you know you know what you know yeah you know it's it's the energy man you know and you start talking all whacked and stuff 
and that's where I kind of headed down. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And it's just uh, a way a way we deal with things because we don't want to sit there and, and work out the hurt. That's how we deal with it. We make it all okay. Hmm. Well, I'm like that because that's just the way I am. Well, now you like that because you hurt. You like that because you damn hurt. You hurt really bad inside. And you need to sit down with the only person in the world who could figure that shit out with you. And that's Jesus. Like, for real. And um, and that for me is like... That for me is when it started to, to become real for me. When you recognize that? Yeah, I remember. I'll tell you, right where I was, I was at a T-section, like right in Windsor. I was about to drive over the bridge. And my favorite um, scene like, of all time in the Bible, there's two of them. Um, one is when God says to Moses, like I, like, I speak to him straight up. Like, I don't talk to this, this dude and riddles and all that. And that, to me, was like, man, like, I got jealous of Moses. Because mm. you never, like, imagine that, like, not, not having riddles and that, man, just having God speak straight up to you. And then, like, um, the other one is when Jesus was at, like, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, you could tell, like, you could tell, like, he knows what's up. Like, he knows he's about to get, he's about to get, you know, badly messed up. And this whole time he's just thinking, like, about me. And he's thinking about like future me's and and you know like I think about like when God like like he died on a cross right and then and then his blood was spilled and then all this stuff happened right I, you can tell I haven't gone to Bible college so <laughs> you know what I mean like <laughs> not very the most theological word but he died on the cross but I felt like he already made that decision like back then that's yeah. just like the fruit of it. And for me, like when he died on the cross, it was like that's like when he 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 got kind of gave his life as God, you know. But I feel like at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he decided to die for me, like he made that decision as a man, mm. like me, you know. He was just like he was just like me, and he had the same conflicts inside, just like me, and. He saw me and then he he made his peace with me, like the way that I am. And and the way that I am made him do what he has to do now. And so that's for me, um, like when I think about the journey of healing that I've been on, I remember that day he said, I'm okay with you. I've made my peace with you back here. Now start to make peace with yourself. And like uh, it, it didn't all happen at once, but that to me is when I, I knew God was real, real. And uh, and I had to had to kind of bow down to that, you know, like bow down and humble myself. Because some things you can rationalize out and you can bullshit and and you know, read some theologian's book and be all like, well, I believe God is, you know. But then other times you just need to shut up and just be humble because, like, nothing is as, as, um, nothing is as real as encountering Jesus and, and realizing he's okay with you just the way you are. Like, there's nothing comes close to that when you find that piece about that. Yeah. You're listening to episode number 48 of Sparrows and Wildflowers with Benny Egmelis. And now here is a short excerpt from episode 36 with David Barrow. I'd been kind of pretending I was an atheist. And I say pretending because I kind of was like, I'm done with this, I'm out. I had this massive argument with a pair of parents who homeschooled their kids about spare the rod and spoil the child and I was you know I had a big ego and I was like you know a young kind of debater and so anyway I was so deflated from the experience of kind of clashing 
with this ideology I'd never come across before, really, because my parents were so curious about others that to, to meet this kind of black and white ideology faith was so confronting. I felt totally defeated. I felt totally broken. And in that brokenness, I felt this mystery of the divine, you know, this connection with God. And, and there I it was down at Evoker and it was the late afternoon and, you know, it was the golden hour kind of thing when the sun just kind of hits the lagoon there. And I, I remember walking out to the lagoon and, and just had tears down my face and feeling totally broken and saying to God, I give it to you. I'm sick of coming in and out of faith. I, I present to you everything that I am. I reserve the right to be skeptical. I will not give up my mind, but my heart is, you know, I later find out about this guy called John Wesley, who's the Methodist, kind of one of the founder of Methodism, which is my heart strangely warmed. And it kind of just feels like that. And I said, all right, God, I, I you know, bargaining's all part of it. I said, God, I give it to you, whatever's left. And I'm a joiner. I was very involved in extracurricular activities, so I'll join the church as a way of expressing that, that faith. And so I made a commitment then that um, uh, Jesus Christ was my Lord and Saviour, that that meant that I had to be committed to the community of God, and that meant being involved in organised religion. That was a little teaser from episode 36 with David Barrow. You can listen to that episode wherever you found this one. And now back to my conversation with Benny Agmelis. So from that moment, like what changed on the outside? What did things look like for you? I'd um, been separated from my family while I was getting better. Your wife and son? Yeah, my wife and son. And um, slowly started coming back. You know, this is this is why, like, even though I live in Canberra, man, you can't talk shit about my church, man, Hillsong. You know, this is, like, this is my church, you know what I mean? I've had people try and talk smack and I'd be like, yo, I'll slow your roll, my man. Slow your roll. Because they, they was there for me, man. I was there, you know, like all these people, like Cass Langdon and that. Like, these people were ringing me up on a weekly. How you doing? I organised a chair for you there, church. You gonna come sit next to me or what? You know, I got I got dudes like Matty Crockett. You gonna come over and work out with us, brother? Work out. You know, do this run up, man. Real dudes, Casey and and and, and JD, man, and Jad, and all these people, man. Webby, show mad love, Webby. These people. They live this life. They live it. They about loving people, man, back into the kingdom. It's like crazy. And so that's why you can't talk smack about my church, man, because I was like, you you, you got to be strung out on a bed, lost everything, and you get that phone call from your church and be like, yo, we love you. What you need? And then you just you get a sense of loyalty, you know. Mm. So, uh, you know, like I said, um, it, uh, it kind of took a long journey and, and a lot of people in church helped me get back to that place. And, um, you know, it still uh, years to come, struggled, fall over, get back up, fall over, get back up. Each time God just grinding out deeper hurt, deeper pain, and it all comes back down to what you really believe about yourself as a human being. Mm. That's where you're at. That's where, where you find yourself at. Um, what do you really believe about you as a human being? And um, and I think that little part there, no psychologist can work it through with you, no uh, psychiatrist, you know, no preacher, no counsellor, no whatever. That's the place, like, that's that last little bit where you run home and it's just you and him. And accident that stuff out, you know, because it's still it was still in that place, you know, and and then I found, you know, healing and you, you know you can say a type of acceptance or, or or an understanding or a belief, you know, you find this new this faith that you have, you know, and and it's 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 a good place, yeah, it's a good place, a healthy place to be. Awesome. And so even though you kind of ran away to comedy, you've been able to to continue that thread in your life, right? Yeah, hardcore. This is what this thing about like God is gangster, like he <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can 
Like I walked out giving him the middle finger and he's like, yeah, but I'll just use that too. Like you want to go in and do stand-up comedy, I'll just use that too. So don't worry, man. Ed, so <laughs> as much as um, as much as I think, uh, you know, I control my my destiny and all that. Nah, I mean, God, He's got it all sussed out. Like He's taken that and still blessed me and blessed my family, and that's what messes me up about all this. Is that you don't even deserve to have Him being good to you like that. Like if you if you if if he was a person right now in this world, and you saw the way you treated him, and he just kept loving on you like that, man, like there's good, you know you can't you can't not stop and just just go, man, you're amazing. Like how do you do that? So for me, he just kept blessing me in that area, blessing me and blessing me, and then. Um, sooner or later I just acknowledge like this is you know God for some reason has taken this uh, area and, and blessed it and and this is where I'm headed and you know I, I I thought I'd never be back here preaching and carrying on like I said I'd never do that stuff man I told God I'm not fit for that stuff but the amount of people I talk to about God in the comedy scene and um, dudes I just talk about like church and my, my church hill song and all that it's crazy you know like without even knowing it you're preaching you know you're sharing a word like and listen i don't sit up there and be like hey brother <laughs> i sense the lord on you <laughs> sense the lord on you my man you know like <laughs> if i did that before a comedy show man they'd be like get this mother <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah. But I just talk to them like this, cussing and swearing, but I talk about Jesus the way that I do. Mm. And, I, uh, you know, you're preaching without preaching, you know. It's good. Yeah, it's good. What inspires your comedy? Krishant, Jay Ratnam. He said comedians are the minor prophets of the day. Mm. He said they're meant to keep uh, society accountable for all their rubbish. Mm. And so... Um, when I think about that, I think about comedians who do that really well. Like, you got Dave Chappelle, you got like Cat Williams. I like Ricky Gervais, mm-hmm. um, Daniel Tosh 2.0. And listen, if you are a devout Christian that doesn't like cussing or anything, like, do not listen to any of these comedians. <laughs> um, but there's a, as a, just a string, you know, Mickey Flanagan. People, um, Patrice O'Neill, who's terrible, but never shied away from talking about race relations in the comedy scene, and nobody did it as good as him. Nobody did it. He, he owned, he had a way of acknowledging racism, and, and, and even if you stood on the other side, you would still look at that joke and go, yeah, I could see your point. Mm. And that's a that's like the craft of a good comedian. You hit that grey spot where both sides kind of come together and there's this really small circle when they kind of overlap, the grey area I call it, where regardless of, of, of how far apart their opinions are, they can at least say in that little small area, yeah, I agree to disagree on that one, but I see your point. Is that something you seek to do with your comedy yeah a lot of my comedy is hitting that grey zone like you yeah. hit that grey zone and people can laugh and and they laugh and then they go oh yeah you know, he's kind of right and Like, but yeah I still still don't like you know <laughs> still don't like the other side <laughs> yeah right yeah do you think it can affect real change comedy yeah I think today it's getting harder to Really? Yeah, it's getting harder mm. to because we are a very woke society and political correctness has become a very important thing. And I, and, and hear, hear me, as a minority, I'm Aboriginal, so we hold the record in Australia for being discriminated against the longest. Yeah. All right. We hold that record. Everybody just say, no, it's in the Guinness Book of Records. We hold the record. So 
we as a, like as an Aboriginal comedian, you want to be able to talk about things and say things. And I welcome the same. If you have a different opinion of me, I welcome you to be able to get up and say what you think. I mean, um, comedians today won't joke about a lot of subjects because of the backlash of political correctness. Mm. And when you do that, you you tie our hands. But that's, that's what I was going to say. As an Aboriginal comedian, I know what it's like as a minority to be the butt of a joke. Mm. And we've got a saying in comedy, you don't punch down, you punch up. Yeah. So if I make a fun of you, it should have come at the expense of ripping your heart out and and un, and ripping your trauma out your life, throwing it on the table so we can all laugh. Like that's not that's not punching that's punching down. And so I get it, I get it uh, where we were the butter jokes and made fun of and and ridiculed as Aboriginal people. Why it's important to have parameters, to have uh, standards, to have a type of moral code yeah um but when you go so far that i can't even talk about certain issues i mean then we then we can't have an honest conversation because now i i have to sit here and 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 restrict what i really believe and think and and i can't say that on stage I can't talk about being a Christian or or or, 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 or love Jesus like this especially because in people's mind it'd be like no that's not funny man like we should punch down on Christians and church and you know like all this sort of stuff and and and, and that to me like when when we see the comedy scene being restricted like that we're losing our voice we're losing our ability as comedians to sit there and have intellectual debates over why we believe what we believe and trust me i've sat in man i've sat with transgender comedians i've sat with um you know white white nationalist you know some would even call white supremacists but comedians who have a very strong patriotic view of their country and sat and talked and and we can joke with each other Really? Yeah, we can sit there and have a co- and joke about our differences, hmm. but we can't do that on stage because of this kind of environment now. And that's um, I used to always pride myself on being like the last true art form, where we could say whatever we want and do whatever we want, but that's not the case today. So, do you think it will come back around to a place where you can respectfully engage in these? discussions i think what we've seen has been what what i guess what it's been all the time but i see right now that like different comedy rooms starting up that'll say we we are only a xyz comedy room and we only joke about xyz and then another comedy scene will come up and they're like mate it's free for all we don't care Mm-hmm. And so you'll start to see rooms, although, and we see it now, take a very strong stance on which side of the fence they stand on or what they believe in. And my thing, I think there's a lot of professional courtesies we need to think about, like creating safe working spaces for all people mm-hmm. in the comedy scene, like to make sure it's it's safe. But then there is something powerful in being able to, to be honest and open about uh, your true thoughts and feelings on different matters. I think it, it it's healthy. It's healthy, and I I say it with my son. Like my wife is a dinky dye Australian. She's white. Like you know what I mean. Like her dad is, I don't know how many generations deep, but a lot. You know, mum's German, and we, she says I love Australia Day. I love celebrating Australia Day. Whereas for me, it's a day a different day. My my, my wife talks about what are we going to do on Australia Day and all this sort of stuff. And my son kind of starts to get a bit woke and goes, oh, mum, you can't say that, that's racist. And I say, Gabriel, your mum married an Aboriginal. She had an Aboriginal son. Do you think she's racist? 
And she, he goes, oh, he thinks about it. He goes, no. And I said, no, you goose. <laughs> I said, she's not a racist. You, you don't confuse love of country with racists. They're mm. two different things. And you cannot treat them the same. And so when we are, aren't able to have honest conversations, we get mixed, all this gets mixed up. It's hard for us to, to figure out what's true north in all of this. Yeah. I met a lot of people who love the country, but they're not racist, you know, and I, I, I met a lot of people who are racist, and I know the difference. On that topic of Australia Day, mm. what would you like to see happen in that space? You know, look, and this is my opinion only. It's not the shared opinion of Aboriginal people. You, yeah. We have a very diverse, dif- different opinions on matters, you know? Yeah. So... um. I think we need a day that we can all come together. And it can't be a day that celebrates this um, beginning of a new country because you can't celebrate stepping on um, people and creating so much pain and hurt. And, and, and if that's the beginnings of your celebration, it's never going to end well. Yeah. There has to be a coming together and a new a new focus. Whatever that could be. Do we do we reconcile? Do we heal? How do we heal as a nation from our past? And I believe that we need a new day to do that together. And it and it doesn't fall on Australia Day. We we change Australia Day to something else. But I guess the positive thing is it's like like Australians, if you can come to the party with us Aboriginals and f- and find this new kind of day that we could celebrate together, we will push for another public holiday. And that's amazing. You know, like it's a pretty good deal. I, I don't know, like if, you, if it was like, yo, can you put that aside and we'll get you a free public holiday? I was like, I'll take that. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, but for, for, for me, I believe it needs to be a day of healing. I yeah. think we need to come together and understand each other's love for this country. Mm. And, and I think it's the love of our country that we have in common. You love your country because you fought for it, because your grandfather fought for it, because you helped build the economy. Now we love our country because our dreaming stories are in it and we have a story for that river and we are the, and we are the Mawali Kurwali people and Baraji is our snake and Narinari is our waterhole. And, and when we can understand each and exchange each other's love for country, I understand why you love it and you understand why I love it, we might start to heal. That's a, a day we could look forward to. Mm. Yeah. That's really good. And you spoke there about the dreaming stories and the Aboriginal spirituality. Has that been a big part of your life? Yeah, heck yeah. Look, it's funny because my wife went to Bible college, all right? So I've never won an argument in, well, like 18 years, you know. And I went to the state debate championships three years in a row. Two of them I came first. One of them I came second. That's so, amazing. No, I got cred. I got cred in arguing, right? Yeah. Never won an argument at home, right? 18 <laughs> years. I mean, I could walk out and be like, yo, Claire, this guy's blue. And she'd be like, mm-mm. And I'm wrong, you know. <laughs> She's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, um, <laughs> I got lost now in <laughs> talk of jazz. But she brings with her a lot of the Bible and theology and around, like, that's Christ-centered and that, you know, like. But I still teach my son our spirituality and our dreaming. I said to my wife, it, it, I don't know how we do this. But acknowledging that in our culture does not mean uh, you're you're you you have to you have to not be a Christian or mm. or believe in the Bible or the Word of God. So they you wouldn't see them as in conflict, but no, because yeah. everything like we believe in Mother Earth and protecting our Earth, yeah, and we believe that we are connected to this Earth. 
and the earth it creates you know substance for us it heals us this earth heals us it it reminds us of a lot of things you know and we believe that but go back to adam and eve in the bible what did god tell them to do like look after all this yeah take care of all this you know don't let anything happen to this this is we the first job given to humans was to care for this land Mm-hmm. And we have kept that in our generations after generations, kept that in our line of, of our people. Still to this day, we believe in that. So when I tell someone about our dreaming and how important it is to, you know, to that this land is, is we meant to look after it and it will look after us. I'm not reciting just blackfellow ways, Aboriginal ways. That's going way back, even before our time. Yeah. So that's spiritual, I think, you know, and then, um, you know, we have a very strong connection to animals mm. and what we, you know, we call them our totems or our, our, our spiritual thing. We see an animal in that. But I look at the Bible, I see all these examples where God uses animals yes. to speak, to do a lot of things. So there's a lot of stuff where um, it's not that far of a stretch, you know, we just black it up a bit, you know, but it's there in the Bible. Yeah. That's it's where it finds its origins, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. I guess how um, have you reconciled the way that Christian theology and church came to this nation? Has that been a barrier for you, I guess, in terms yeah. of connecting to Jesus? Yeah, look... The notion of God and, and, and theology and Bible and Christianity and, and organized religion as such, I, I never I never struggled with it until I realized that there was no acknowledgement of the past. Mm. You know, there was none no acknowledgement of of past injustice and it happened one day. I was I was arguing or debating, sorry, with another brother who's uh, a, a you know theologian and, and he's well versed and he knows the Bible back to front. And he's saying to me, you know, this country was built on God values. You look at the education system. You know, it was designed you know around God-centered stuff. You look at health system, God-centered. You know, all of this with this entire country was built on God theology, God, you know, ideas and all this sort of stuff. And I said, Oh well how I said, How did that happen, man? Was he like for God so loved the world that he gave his only his only son? And I was saying to him, um, it's 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 okay to sell that to other people, but when you you believed that but your actions were the opposite towards our First Nation people. You can understand why we struggle with that notion a little bit. And for me, um, I believe it was never their job to do that to us. It was their job to uh, be 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 um, be Jesus to us, yeah. to love us unconditionally, to. Uh, to, to feed the poor, to help, to protect. That was their job as the church when they first come to this country, to uh, stand up for those who could not uh, protect themselves, to protect our women and not have them raped. And, and, that, and that, I believe that was the job of the church. And, um, and what they did was the opposite. They rolled out. Uh, this government's racist policies and tore our families apart and and used religion uh, as a as a whipping lash when that was never the intention of the Bible, but yeah. these people did that. They took the Bible and they they used the words in that Bible against us like it was some evil kind of whiplash, and that was never God's intention for His word. You know, they missed out all of this stuff. And so I did struggle when 
there was little acknowledgement about the church's role in um, in our history and what had happened. And then when I got into this consulting space, I realized shivers. They don't even know. They don't even know that this is what has happened as a church. They had no idea, these churches. And so I started doing my best to help educate mob pastors, people, talk to them about this is our history and um, this is why we have very low numbers of Indigenous people in church. You know, extremely low. And if we want to see more people, blackfellas coming into church and serving the Lord, then you're going to have to, going to, have to acknowledge this past and heal and go on a journey with us. I remember this old pastor, he passed away now, his name Ronnie Westbrook. This old pastor, he told me, he said, Benny, you can't change something if you're not prepared to take responsibility for it. Mm. You know, he said, regardless of whether you were involved or not, it may happen generations before your time. You can't change it if you're not prepared to take responsibility for it. And so I think right now we we in like a, what's that word like you call like a revolution or revival or whatever. I think God's moving across all the churches, every denomination across Australia right now and saying it's time we mend this, we break bread and we figure a way how to heal. Yeah. And um, and get back to what the church was always meant to do. Mm. Protect the the ones who can't protect themselves. Feed the ones who can't feed themselves. Share the unconditional love of Jesus. You know, stand when injustice has as is happening. When they when the people are oppressed, the church stands there with them, and and they and they. Do not care about politics. They just see that that uh, some a people group is hurting. So that's what I think the church is is meant to do today. But it's hard. It's hard to navigate the political space. That is, mm. and they need a lot of support. Our pastors and and a lot of you know. That's why I love Pastor Uncle Will Dumas. Deadly, you know, that's what they do. They they get in and help support these churches like that because it's tough, you know. Some of these pastors are third, fourth generation. They, they great-grandfathers, their grandfathers were the ones that rolled out this stuff. Their grandfathers were the ones who made this stuff happen to us. You know, they were compliant and, and, and involved in this. That's a hard thing to swallow, you know. So we gotta we gotta walk with them and, and 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 help them. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that. And so you have a consulting or multiple consulting businesses now. So you work with churches and with government and with business. Yeah. Is that right? Look, I've been working with government for a long time. Um, there's a lot of policy out there that's been implemented in a lot of these government departments need to comply with that policy and so I've worked in this space for many years helping them comply um, at a national level, state level, have helped you know large corporations, companies, national companies comply with their um, you know with state policy, national policy and then I remember it was like a year or so ago like I was sort of no interest in working in church or around churches, eh? like I didn't even want to get in the space right. Mm-hmm. And then I just, you know, kind of felt like I heard this voice say, you know, like, all right, it's time to go and help our church out. And that was like as simple as that, you know. You know, people go, and the Lord said to me, <laughs> Jeremiah, I won't tell you now, you know. <laughs> I breathe the breath of God in you. No, like God for me was like, it's time to help. Mm. It's time to stop running away from church now and it's mm-hmm. time to help. That's what you're meant to do. Mm-hmm. And so I just said, well, all right then, where do I start? And then the doors just opened. It was Lee Burns actually who, who sat down and we started to talk about a lot of this uh, intake, Indigenous intake. 
In Bible college? Yeah, in Bible college. How mm. do we get black fellas into Bible college? Because I believe in it. Mm. I believe in the culture of this church, you know, and what it could do for our mob, you know, mm. our people, if they could understand the leadership principles and there's a lot of things that our mob could learn. You know, we we sit in strategic positions now. We don't just have own businesses. We advise government politicians on, you know, state policy, all this sort of stuff. We we have uh, major influences. And so imagine that being influenced by God, you know, and learning that here. I'd love the first Aboriginal Prime Minister to come through college, you know. Wow, that'd be cool. That'd be deadly. Yeah, proper. So I think um, I think our mob have a lot to learn off of off of this place, you know. And a lot to give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's awesome. Mm. And what are your kind of hopes for yourself and for your family? What are our hopes? Jeez. I'll say like that, like that we live on a, a farm and just look after llamas. Oh, really? Yeah. But it's... um. It's uncomplicated, mm. and we get to stick together, and we are not um, so busy that we don't have time to hear from him, from God. So it sounds stupid, but when I look at a llama farm out in the middle of nowhere, I'm, uh, I'm with my family, I'm... I'm uh, I'm safe, they're safe, and I'm and I'm where God can talk to me without the, the noise of the busy life, you know. And the llama farm is just like um, representation or something, you know. It's you can have a llama farm anywhere, really. It's all about creating time for your family and being there with your family, loving on them. It's all about being able to to, to communicate with the person that matters, you know, to God. And um, and you make it time for yourself to work through the things you need to work through. That's what llama farm represents to me. So anyway, people laugh at me about llama farms, but they don't see what I see. <laughs> <laughs>